I've been really praying about uh, how best to approach the series that we began in Sunday school this morning. And uh, with regards to do I do it every Sunday morning in Sunday school or should we continue on through it? And um, I believe at least for this week we'll go ahead and continue this afternoon uh, with what we started this morning in Sunday school uh, regarding uh, the issue of uh, what the Bible has to say on the topic of divorce and what it has to say about re, uh, remarriage. And uh, we prefaced a lot of things this morning, took a lot of time to lay some groundwork. And one of the things that is very important and is our founding principle and guidance in all of this is found in Acts chapter number 5 and verse number 29 when the Bible says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And I've, I've chosen that, and I believe the Lord has uh, had us kind of focus on that verse um, as a foundational truth that while we look at these things, we want to know what does the Bible say about it. Uh, we've been taught things for many years. I'll be honest with you. My position on it now is not what it was when I was brought up. Uh, I was taught things. And I took them as truth, and I took them as doctrine, simply because I was taught them. And as we begin to look at Scripture, and what we're going to do, uh, because this has become such a pressing issue uh, in the last, not, not even in the last two weeks, although certainly within the last two weeks has kind of come to light a little bit more, but is an issue that for the last probably five or six weeks I've been dealing with in one way or another with people, some of them even outside of our church, that have asked for meetings and have uh, taken time to um, talk with me and to discuss some issues in their lives. And uh, it's an issue that I believe is, is, has been severely, uh, there's, there certainly has not been nearly enough attention paid to it, and it has oftentimes been mistaught from Scripture. And the reason is we, we pick and choose the passages that fit what we've been taught to preach on. And there's a danger to that. Now we begin to say, okay, I'm going to begin with a doctrine, and I'm going to now go and find Scripture to support my doctrine. And that's what we give a big problem to the, the line of churches in the early church that branched off and became uh, the Roman Catholic Church and that line of people who began to change the Bible to fit their doctrine. Uh, we believe as Baptists we've come from a line of pure doctrine, and we are so fanatical about having pure doctrine that we are also fanatical about the Bible that we use because we believe that in order for us to have purity of doctrine, we must have a pure Word of God. And then we go to the Bible and we say, okay, I'm not going to build my doctrine and then go find Scripture to fit it. I'm going to come to the Bible for my doctrine. And that is one of the distinguishing traits of a Baptist church at least an authentic Baptist church. Now, there may be some out there that by name are called Baptist, but they may uh, not do that. They may come up with their doctrine first. They may hold to things that their associative group believes in, and they may pull a passage of Scripture or two that helps support it, but they do not look at the Scripture in its entirety. And one of the things that I believe has been a detriment to the cause of Christ has been that too many, not too many churches have taken the opportunity to do an in-depth and an exhaustive study on this topic. 
And I've shared with you already this morning, I have no other motivation in this than to be accurate by Scripture. Uh, I want to make sure that we're teaching the truth of what, what the Bible says. That is my only motive in this. Um, it's very, very important that we know that, that what Scripture says is true and it is right and that we can uh, dogmatically and definitively and authoritatively and boldly stand on that doctrine once we are certain this is what the Bible teaches. So we, we established some things this morning. The importance of this, obviously, is that if we misinterpret this, if we, if we do not understand it according to Scripture, it can cost literally thousands of souls that may die and go to hell because of us being wrong on this issue. It may also cause some spouses to stay in very abusive and terrible marriages uh, that are harmful even because they don't feel like they have any other choice if we're wrong on this issue. And so I, I want us as we go to the Scriptures, and we spent some time this morning laying some groundwork and so we're going to pick up on where we left off. I'll give just a real quick synopsis for those that weren't here in Sunday school of where we're at. There's two main schools of thought on the topic. One is uh, absolute restrictive, meaning that there's never a time for divorce in Scripture, that there's never a time for remarriage in Scripture. And uh, the problem, if, if we take that approach, that there's never a time for divorce or never a time for remarriage, we begin to, if we hold that position, we begin to adopt some very odd and even incorrect hermeneutical practices when we begin to study other portions of Scripture that seem to contradict that position. And we begin to try to come up with ways to explain those Scriptures away. And again, what we do when we do that is we start with our doctrine and say, well, I can't be wrong in my doctrine so therefore, this passage has to read a different way. And we begin to try to make that scripture say something that it does not say. Or we try to use cultural background to form our doctrine on. Can I say this? Cultural background is helpful for us to understand the truth of the passage, but it should never be the thing that we establish our doctrine on. And so we've got to be careful of some of these things that we, we begin to delve into with regards to Bible interpretation and understanding passages of Scripture. Uh, the issue of uh, there's never a time for a divorce to be taken place. We gave some Scripture from Malachi chapter 2 that talks about God hating uh, putting away, the idea of putting away. But again, if you'll take the context of what Malachi was saying is they were leaving their Jewish wives, writing them a bill of divorcement, and then going out and marrying pagan wives and raising pagan children and going after those false gods. And uh, God said that he, he hated that, that putting away of their Jewish wife for the purpose of going after pagan wives. Then we went to the same exact issue in, in Ezra. And Ezra approaches it from a different perspective. Ezra comes and says, listen, we, we believe that it's God's will. In fact, he goes on to say that it is God's pleasure that they put away their pagan wives so that they can be right with God again. And the idea of putting them away then was God's pleasure. Well, obviously, God can't hate putting away, just generally speaking, in one place and then it be his pleasure in another place, there must be underlying reasons why he was displeased with it in one place and pleased with it in another place. And the only thing that we see that is different is, one was they were moving towards paganism in the, in the aspect of it. The other was they were getting right with God in the aspect of it. 
Um, and so, again, there was, there was some differences there, and, and God actually uh, is for and approved the putting away of their wives in Ezra chapter number 10, verses 1 through 4, and also in verse number 11. And uh, we talked a little bit about that. Also in Mark chapter number 10 and uh, verse number 29, we found that there are, there are those that, for the cause of Christ, will lose father, mother, sister, brother, the Bible says, and wife, for my sake and the gospel's. Uh, again, those those will happen, and in fact, in the early church, happened more so probably than it does today, uh, because when a person became a Christian back then, uh, many times their family would disown them. The parents would disown the children. Uh, they would kick them out, say, you're not even our children anymore. Spouses would kick the other spouse out and say, you are not my wife or you are not my husband any longer, and they were kicked out for the fact that they had put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for the cause of Christ, and for the gospel's sake. And we find that in Mark chapter number 10 and verse number 29. Now, was God for that? Probably not, but it did happen. And then what happens as a result of that? Uh, we also address the issue under that absolute restrictive mindset uh, that if there is a divorce that is within Scripture or within the bounds of Scripture, that certainly Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, tells us definitively then according to that passage, if that's the only one you look at, that you could never remarry. Uh, the problem with that is when we go to Matthew 19, which is the parallel passage to it, it's the same passage recorded in a different gospel, Matthew adds something to it that's not found in Mark. And so if you will, that's kind of where we were leaving off and then we're moving into Deuteronomy. So let's look at Matthew chapter number 19 real quick. And again, bear with us. If you have questions or you feel like I have taken something out of context, by all means, write it down and get with me either after the service or if you want to wait till next week when we get through all of it to make sure you've understood it all and then come to me, that's fine. We'll sit and talk ad nauseum about it. And if I'm wrong and you can show me from Scripture that I'm wrong, I'll correct it. I promise you that. My desire is to be right scripturally. and But I don't want to hold to a doctrine that is held to only because that's what the group that I associate with hold to, and I can't find it in Scripture. Do you understand the difference there? And so please, please, please give us the grace and the ability to come to Scripture first, let Scripture define the doctrine for us, and then if there are questions or issues or complications with what we've said, then come sit with me. We'll sit and discuss it prayerfully and over Scripture, and we'll go to Scripture together. I promise you this. And those of you that know me know I'm telling you the truth on this. I will honestly and sincerely go to Scripture with you on this, and let's find the truth, okay? So bear with us on this. I believe we've done a, a lot of very careful study on this, so I don't believe there's going to be a whole lot of issues with it once we show it from Scripture. But uh, bear with us on it as we go through. Matthew chapter number 19, and uh, let's look in verse number 1. It came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. And uh, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him. Now, again, both Mark and Matthew make this statement. Mark, it says they were doing it to test him. Matthew uses the phrase, he tempted him. They, they're trying to trip Jesus up on this. Okay, so they're, they're not doing this because they want to find out anything. They're trying, to, they're trying to get Jesus to say something that they can refute according to the law. And uh, notice that it is the Jews that he's speaking to here. They are asking him about a specific law. 
a, a very narrow and a very specific law that we're going to look at here in just a moment. The, Pharisee, uh, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now that's the key here, and that's something that is not stated specifically in Mark. So again, you can't just take Mark and make your doctrine on that one passage. You have to look at the entirety of Scripture, compare Scripture with Scripture. Same event, same issue, Matthew's account of it adds some things to it that we did not find in Mark uh, for every cause. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which hath made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Therefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder." And some people use that verse, and they say there it shows that no matter what man does, they're always married in the sight of God because what God puts together, man cannot put it asunder. That's not what the verse says. It doesn't say man cannot put it asunder. It says man should not put it asunder. Let him not do it. Because there is a way for man to put it asunder. There is a possibility. We're going to look at that in just a moment. And they say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? And he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, and here is a phrase that also is not found in Mark chapter 10, except it be for fornication. And shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away, committeth adultery. Now, we'll stop for just a moment there, for, and we're going to talk a little bit about this verse, more so than I did in Sunday school. We're not going to spend a great deal of time on it, because there's not a whole lot that needs to be dealt with on this issue, other than I want to preempt some things that have been taught on this verse that are not correct. There are those that will teach in verse number 9 that it is dealing here with a betrothed couple, not a married couple that has consummated the marriage and made it a full marriage. There is an issue with that also found in verse number 9 if you take that position. Uh, first of all, fornication is a word that deals with all kinds of immorality with regards to physical uh, uh, relationships. Uh, it includes everything that's done immorally outside of marriage, but it also includes the same thing that can happen within the bounds of marriage. Adultery, the word adultery, is a little more limiting. So fornication is a more broad view of immoral things. Adultery is very, very specific. It is only done under the bounds of marriage. Okay, so keep that in mind. So the problem with saying that this is just a betrothed and not a fully consummated marriage that is speaking of here in verse number 9 there's two issues with it. Number one is, he makes statement that whoso marrieth her that is put away committeth what? Adultery. That can only be done as a marital act. It cannot be done as just fornication, generally speaking, and outside of the bonds of marriage. Adultery is very specific. So if her remarrying outside of the bonds or out of, out after this without it being for fornication... Uh, is causing her to commit adultery, then that tells us that she had a legitimate, full-fledged marriage to this man in verse number 9. 
The other way we know that is because it is referencing the law that is given in Deuteronomy chapter number 24. So let's take time to go over and take a look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter number 24. We're going to look at it a little more closely. We, we tend to hear good preaching <laughs> that we can amen to. I mean, preachers get some good, strong points on this issue, and boy, they'll let out some things. I, I was telling a fellow, I've, I've sat in services where preachers don't let the Bible get in the way of a good message. Have you ever been there? And, there, <laughs> and, and it's not that it's a bad message even, but they didn't use proper Scripture for it. And sometimes we get on this topic and we'll make good points, but we don't have the Scripture to back it. And uh, so sometimes we misstate these things. Now look with me in verse number, chapter number 24 of the book of Deuteronomy. This is what they were asking the Lord about in Matthew chapter number 19 and also in Mark chapter number 10. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, notice this, because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Now that's very, very important. And we're going to talk about, prob- I don't know if we'll get to that part today, but by next Sunday morning in Sunday school, we will deal with what are these things that are uncleanness. What is that specifically talking about? We're going to deal with that a little more appropriately from Scripture and find out what is it specifically he's talking about. So if this guy is married and he finds out after this marriage, and it's a full marriage, we're not talking here about betrothal. You say, how do you know that? Because it says that he married her. If you look over in chapter number 22, if you'll take just a minute, keep your hand there for just a moment. And uh, let's see here. Um, Let's go to uh, verse number 28. I'm just going to pick one at random uh, out of verse number 22. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin, which is not, what's the next word here? Betrothed. Okay. In Deuteronomy, the writer of Deuteronomy is very, very specific to make the distinction between a betrothed person and one that is married. So again, we're not dealing here with a betrothed person in chapter 24 and verse number 1. We're dealing here with my King James Bible. It says what it says. It is a married person, fully consummated marriage. And it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he had found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it into her hand and send her out of his house. And we've had preachers preach on that passage and he, he, they'll talk about that, but they will not go to verse number 2, which says, And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Now, lest you say, well, that's the innocent party. No, no. This is the one that the uncleanness was found in, even. Kind of interesting, isn't it? I want to let that sink in for a minute, because again... One of the hardest things I have to do when I come to Scripture is not let my preconceived beliefs shadow what the Bible is trying to tell me or over over control it. I want the Bible to tell me what I believe and what I hold to. Here it's telling her if she gets a bill of divorcement from from the reason of being unclean and her husband separates from her, that she is free to remarry. And it's not committing adultery because there is a penalty for adultery in this, in this book. What's the penalty of adultery? Stoning. If it's committing adultery for her to get remarried for this reason, then she would have been stoned. 
and she's not, because we find here in verse number 3, and if the latter husband, okay, so this is not her first one, <laughs> this is now at least her second one, okay? We can say that for a certainty. There may have been others in between that are not mentioned here, but at least this is the, the one that's not the first one. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it into her hand, and sendeth her out of his house. Or, if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, the former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. So even if, let's say, let's say this happens, let's say, uh, and I'm just going to use y'all as an illustration, let's say you're married, and I'm going to talk to husbands here for a minute. Let's say your wife uh, had some form of uncleanness, you write her a bill of divorcement, and she goes off and she marries another man. And Baptist people get together and say, oh, no, that should have never happened. You shouldn't have remarried. What she needs to do is divorce that guy and be reconciled to you. Can't do it. Can't do it. She's been married now to another man, and she cannot come back to her first husband. Do we see what the Bible's saying here? Again, folks, I have, I have no dog in this fight. Uh, I am divorced, but I have no desire to remarry. Zero, none. Not. I'm not trying to say, hey, I want our church prepared in case I ever get remarried. That is, that is not happening in me, okay? I want to be right with Scripture. And for far, far, far too long, we have mistaught this subject from Scripture. So that being the case now, let's take a look at some things. So we have the absolute restrictive. We find that if you hold to that view... Absolute restrictive, that there's never a reason for divorce. There's never a, a time for remarriage. When we get to passages like this, we begin to start making up our own rules of understanding or interpretation to explain it away. Or we'll go to the culture of the day, and sometimes we'll read on Wikipedia some guy that didn't even know anything about the culture writing something about culture, trying to explain it away. And we base our doctrine on that. We cannot. We must be based on what Scripture says. The second school of thought is uh, the exceptionality uh, group of folks who say, yes, this is, this is something that uh, God says we should not divorce. And by the way, let me say this uh, to begin with. God never desires for divorce. That's never his initial desire. His initial, and his, if he could have his perfect world, is to have godly families that stay together for life. We know that from Scripture, and we do not contest that issue. It was not so from the beginning. Even Christ said that as he was speaking to the Pharisees. It was not so from the beginning. I made man and, and woman, put them together in the Garden of Eden. That is my will. That's what ought to be happening. But sin entered into the world, and because of the hardness of men's hearts, I have made exceptions for these things, and these things now become exceptions to it. One of them that we find, and here's the, the, the downfall of the absolute restrictive is we cannot keep those same principles of interpretation consistent as we look at the rest of Scripture. We have to change our rules of interpretation, which is a dangerous and a very, very slippery slope to go down. Now we start changing all kinds of doctrines because we're starting to make up rules for interpretation. We have to hold steady on, on uh, accepted rules of hermeneutics and understanding Scripture. So, so that's, not a, that's not a possibility. The other opportunity is exceptionality where we believe that God made some exceptions. There is a danger to this side, although I do believe it is the side which God has done. The danger to this side is that because of our flesh, 
men have a propensity to justify their actions regardless of what the Bible says and to make exceptions that are not found in Scripture. And so the danger side of being uh, one of these guys that says, okay, I believe God made some exceptions and some opportunities for these things to happen is that we've got to guard against, again, the same thing we did when we came to this subject and approached this subject, and that is having our minds made up that this is an acceptable thing. We don't want to make exceptions based on how we feel or what we think about it. We need to say, okay, what are the biblical exceptions that God gives? Okay? So we're going to go down this road. <laughs> and it's going to probably take us today and at least next Sunday morning and maybe one other service. I had planned on about four services for this. It may take longer if you guys have more questions and we need to clarify something further. But we're going to go down the road of exceptionality, which I believe is something that the Bible does give. And I want us to be very careful that we only take the exceptions that are given in Scripture. And we take them verbatim. All right? So let's look at the exceptionality of these things. Um, we're going to go to, um, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. And um, there are at least three exceptions that I know are clearly taught in Scripture. And actually a fourth one that I believe can pretty, close, pretty clearly be shown in Scripture. I would not uh, split hairs with somebody over the fourth one if they disagreed, because um, I don't have any despair for one thing. Uh, but I wouldn't split hairs with the fourth one if somebody disagreed with me on it. We would just probably agree to disagree on it. I don't know that it would be a divisive thing for me as far as fellowship. Uh, because, again, I, I don't know that I can dogmatically say it from Scripture, but I believe the Scripture alludes to it by principle, and I, I, we will take a look at that very carefully. Uh, what is the first, uh, you know, as far as someone being able to remarry? Now, let's leave the divorce issue out of it. Let's just take remarriage, no matter what it is, whether it's divorce or whether by being widowed. All right, let's take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians Chapter number 7, and we're going to start with the easiest one because it's one that I think pretty much all of us can agree to. Uh, verse number 39. The wife is bound by, by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. Only in the Lord. Okay? So this is saying basically... If you're a Christian and your spouse dies, you're at liberty to remarry. I don't think most of us in this room would have an issue or a problem with that scripturally. Where that becomes an issue and a point of discussion sometimes is when we begin dealing with qualifications for a pastor and or qualifications of a deacon, uh, where the Bible refers to them as it must be a husband of one wife. Um, so again, my question oftentimes is, if a pastor has been married 50 years, he's getting up in years pastoring the church, and his wife gets cancer or something and passes away, does he have to resign the church? Is he no longer qualified to be a pastor? Most of us would say, no, he, it was by death. And according to 1 Corinthians 7.39, which is the verse we use typically, that by, when the death happens, that they're no longer bound by the marital covenant. There's no bondage there. 
and that she's allowed to go and marry again, or he's allowed to go and marry again, and many pastors do. Same thing with the deacon on the, the husband of one wife. Again, I don't think most of us would have an issue with it being by death. Okay? So, one exception to be remarried, obviously, and an easy one to cover. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on this one is, if your spouse dies, uh, you can be remarried. The Bible speaks of that. It's very clear on that. All right, now let's go to the beginning of chapter number 7. We're going to spend a good deal of time here in this chapter. And I want us to look at a few things here. Now, concerning the things whereof, verse number 1, whereof you wrote unto me. I want to just stop there for a minute and give you the background of why Paul is addressing this and why he's going so extensively into it in chapter number 7. The church at Corinth was a from a very, very corrupt city. In fact, probably out of all the cities that Paul went to to start a church, probably the one that was given most to the occult and paganism was the city at Corinth. A wicked, wicked city. Ungodly city. Uh, and so Paul sees people saved there. They establish a church. And one of the great problems Paul deals with in both of the letters to the Corinthians is trying to deal with them incorporating, in some instances, their past life and their culture of the city it was creeping into the church, and Paul had to keep pushing it out the door, sweeping it out, saying, no, don't let this in here. And great, great persecution was happening. Now, part of the paganism worship many times, and I'm going to try to be careful because I know we have young people here, so I'll try to be very careful in my use of language and not be, I know parents are, are, get cautious about things like this sometimes, so I'll be very careful, I promise you. But in the pagan worship, oftentimes they would have priestesses in the, in the temples. And those of you that are adults in here, you understand what they were used for oftentimes in those, in those rituals. Uh, again, because it was such a, a pagan thing, such a wicked thing. And so the idea of a physical relationship um, was so being, so being so thrust in their face, so to speak, that some of the people at Corinth were asking Paul, should we even get married? Should we even be involved in any kind of physical relationship at all, uh, of any sort? And so Paul is addressing these things. He addresses some questions that he gives and, and that he answers here in chapter number 7. And he says this, uh, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. This is a good thing. Paul said, it's nothing wrong with that. If you decide, hey, I'm not going to get married uh, nothing wrong with that. Paul is not condemning somebody who says, I, I, God has led me to not get married. I don't think I'm going to get married. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, he says, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Lest the husband let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise also the wife to the husband. The wife hath not the power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Now, again, I'm not going to go into this in detail. I think we all understand what this is saying. And Paul is saying, listen, uh, it's okay if you decide, hey, I'm not going to get married, not going to have any kind of physical relationships. But if you can't contain, if you, if you struggle with that, that's a temptation for you. And in that city... This was a huge thing for them. They were constantly confronted with it. He said, listen, if that's the case, then you need to marry. You need to have a husband. You need to have a wife. Okay? And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because that's 
kind of giving you background of where Paul's coming from and what he's going to deal with here. He says this in verse number 6, and I don't want us to misunderstand this, but I speak this by permission and not of commandment. All right, now this is a, a huge, huge statement. Very, very, very important. Uh, some, some Bibles and commentators will say, well, this is Paul's opinion. This isn't what God told him to say. No, no, that is wrong. That is incorrect. Either that or 1 Timothy 3.16 is wrong. How much of Scripture is given by inspiration of God? All of it. Every bit of it. And Paul says this, I speak this by what? Permission. The Holy Spirit put His stamp of approval on it. Said, yes, Paul, go ahead. That's, that needs to be addressed. Not of commandment. So the things that he's getting ready to say are not just reiterating the commandments of the Old Testament, but these are additional things that are now being put into place. And Paul is saying, I'm going to expound on this topic beyond what our Lord Jesus Christ spoke about. You say, how do you know that? Well, look down in verse number, uh, verse number 10. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but who? The Lord. So he said, this is what the Lord said. This isn't what I'm saying. This is what our Lord said. Our Lord said, let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Now, that's what the Lord taught. That's found in Mark chapter 10. We also know that the parallel passage from Matthew chapter 19, again, Matthew's account of what the Lord said, said, except for the cause of fornication. Uh, so, again, there's the exception, even in what the Lord said, and uh, the additional things we find in chapter 7 are things that Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God and by permission adding to the teaching of Christ. The teaching of Christ was for the Jews about the Jewish law and for a specific part of the Jewish law. Paul here is addressing a group of Gentiles who have been saved by the grace of God and are living under grace and are battling some issues in their city that are very much enticing and tempting to them and will, uh, if they're not careful, uh, cause them to fall into some sin. So let's take a look at what it says here. We're going to back up to verse number uh, 7. So again, Paul is speaking this by permission. Just because you read that verse, don't let it be, well, we have to discount this because this isn't by commandment. This is Paul's opinion. No, this is by permission. This is what God told Paul to write. Okay? He says this, For I would that all men were even as myself. Now, we believe that Paul at this point, and I don't think there's any question about it because of how Paul addresses these things, that when he says, I would that all men were even as myself, he's referring to the fact that he was single. He was not married. Uh, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows... It is good for them if they abide even as I. All right. Now, if you've got a piece of paper and you're taking some notes, let me help you with a couple things here. There are two groups of people that Paul is going to speak about in chapter number 7. The first group of people are the married. Okay? I don't think we have any problems understanding who the married are. That is a husband and wife that are still under the bounds of marriage. And then there's the term that is used here that is uh, the unmarried. Okay, the unmarried. So we find that in verse number uh, 8. 
where it refers to the unmarried and widows. Well, wait a minute. Who are the unmarried? And if we hold to our doctrine first, and we say, I want to make that verse fit, then obviously that's speaking about people who have not been married before. But it certainly would not be speaking of the divorced, would it? Well, let's go down and take a look at verse number 11, which is what God said about it in His earthly ministry. But, and if she depart, this is the woman who's divorced now, let her remain what? Unmarried. So the divorced are included in the phrase or the title or being characterized as being unmarried in this chapter. So we have three people that are unmarried in this chapter. We have widows who would be considered unmarried. We have those that have never been married. And then we have those that have been put away or those that have been divorced. We're going to see that a little more explicitly later in the chapter. And so I want you to hang on to that thought. Because right now some of you are probably saying, well, that might be a stretch. But we're going, to, we're going to take all doubt away from it here as we get to the end of the chapter. And I'll show it to you here in just a few moments if we get that far. If not, you'll have to tune in next Sunday morning, same bat time, same bat channel, because that's when we'll deal with it. <laughs> so, All right, so bear with us here. All right, so let's look at verse number 8. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them even to abide even as I. So Paul is going to emphasize this thing. Listen, hey, if there is any way possible, man, if you can contain, don't get married. Especially, and he's going, to, he's going to speak of this later in the chapter, especially in the day that we are living, unbelievable persecution going on here, unbelievable vileness in the city. It was hard for a person to be married in this day and go through the persecution and the, and the times of the family and the separations of the family. He said, so if there's any way possible, it's a good thing not to marry. Now, <laughs> you say, Brother Greg, the, Solomon said, He who findeth the wife findeth the good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. That's true. But Paul is speaking to a very specific time period in these people's lives. That, hey, they're under great distress. And if there's a possibility to help ease that distress and not have to deal with that distress and the care of a family, if there's any way possible, just remain single. But, let's go on. If they cannot contain... Let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And I think we as adults all understand that. Under the married, again, we find the commandment that God gave. Under the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband, and, but, and if she depart, uh, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Now, that's God's desire. That's what he really would love to see happen. By the way... I think that's what every one of us as Christians would love to see happen, wouldn't it? None of us desire a divorce. I, I, I certainly didn't. Uh, and, and those are not things that we look for and say, boy, I really want to do that. Now, notice verse number 12. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. So to the rest of this issue of divorce and remarriage, this isn't what God in His earthly ministry said. This isn't what the Lord said in His earthly ministry. This is now some additional things that I've been given permission by the Holy Spirit to give to you that are certainly things that are exceptional and from the Lord. But the rest speak I not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. 
And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Now, again, it's not speaking here of the spouse being saved by the saved, the other saved spouse. It's saying that the light, the salt that this person is, has a holy and a sanctifying effect on their family. That the, that person is not as bad because of their presence to them, their their. Uh, being in that room with them. Same with the children. They're being raised by at least one parent that is a Christian. And so there's a holiness there. There's a setting apart there. So Paul is not saying that if there's an unequal yoke here, if there's a Christian and an unbeliever, that you have to divorce. Okay? Could we agree on that? He's not saying by any means that you have to divorce them. In fact, he goes so far as to say if they're pleased to dwell with you, if it's a good marriage, if y'all are in love and, and things are going well and the marriage is doing great, then by all means, stay with them because there may be a cleansing effect. However, if it is not one of those pleasant things, maybe it's an abusive home. Maybe the husband is, is critical of the wife and beating the wife and demanding the wife not be what the Bible tells her she has to be or vice versa then Paul is saying, okay, there's an exception for that. Notice in verse 13, or I'm sorry, verse number uh, 15. For if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. This is desertion. This is someone who says, okay, uh, my, my spouse is saved and following the Lord, and I don't want to have any part of it. I'm leaving. Then notice what Paul says here. If the unbelieving depart, let him depart. And if you have a pen, I want you to underline this next phrase. A brother or a sister is not under what? Bondage in such cases. Now, wait a minute. Look over to verse 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. And that's the verse we use to support the qualifications of a pastor or a deacon having a second wife after the death of his wife, that they are not bound anymore. That's, that's the principle we use. Is there still a bondage there, a marital bondage? The same terminology is used when we find that this unbelieving has departed, the desertion, that their brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. They're free to remarry. By the way, if I understand that and we take the same passage in verse number 39, they're also qualified. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? And I've heard some people teach on this verse and say, well, you need to stick with them no matter what. Abusive situation or no matter what, because you might save them. No, no, that's not what Paul's saying here. 
Paul's saying if they're pleased with you, dwell with them. But if they depart, let them depart because you don't know that you'll be able to save them. You don't stay with a person simply because, well, I might be able to save them. No, no. If it's abusive, get out of it. Now, it's your choice. Paul doesn't command you to get a divorce, but it is within the bounds of what God allows. And you are not under bondage in those instances. It's not... It's not one of these ambiguous passages of Scripture. It's fairly clearly spelled out. One of the problems why we don't teach this in our churches is because it doesn't fit what we believe. And so we don't teach on this passage. We don't look at 1 Corinthians 7 and delve into it. We hold to Mark 10. Is Mark 10 wrong? No. It's right. It's just a very high-level statement that does not go into detail or into, into some of the things that is later explained more fully. So we have a couple of exemptions so far. If someone's uh, spouse dies, they're no longer bound. They can remarry. If someone is abandoned, they are not under bondage. They can remarry. Here's the one that I'm going to say that if, if you disagree with me on, that's fine. We'll disagree on it. But the language that's used here in the desertion is if the husband or the, is pleased to dwell with her or if the wife is pleased to dwell with him. Causes me to think that if this marriage is literally an abusive situation physically, emotionally, or spiritually, that they're again, it, 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 they're not happy to be with them, they still have that same ground to leave and to be free. Because again, it says that if the husband be pleased to dwell with her, if he's not pleased to dwell with her, that doesn't meet the requirement, does it? So she's not under bondage at that point. Or if the wife is not pleased to dwell with him, then that does not meet that requirement to stay with them. So they're not under bondage in that case. Again, that's one if you want to disagree with me on, we'll disagree on, but to me that's an, that's an abusive situation. For a person to stay in a marriage for years and years and years and take verbal abuse, emotional abuse, and heaven forbid physical abuse, and not think that they can get out of that marriage because we've taught it wrong from the pulpit, I believe we'll give an account for that. I believe there are men that ought to be in pulpits all over this world today that are sitting in pews saying, I'm not qualified. And we're going to give an account for that. Well, let's go ahead and see how far we can get. we got... Y'all, can you all hang with me for about five more minutes? We started a little bit late, so we'll go a few more minutes here. The rest of it we'll pick up next Sunday. I know I'm not going to get through all of it. Verse number 17, But as God has distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. God gives a calling. God puts a calling on your life. 
And this is going to be something that some people are going to look at and say, well, I don't see that. But the Bible says here that God distributes to every man, and as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. What is it that God's called you to? What is it that He has for your life? The Bible says, so let Him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. He says, I'm teaching this everywhere. This isn't just to the church at Corinth. I'm teaching these things everywhere I go. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any man called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he is called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. In other words, if you were a pastor when you were under that burden, and you were a servant to this, that's fine. But if you've been made free, use it. Use it. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with the price, be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that it is, that it is good for the present distress, I say, that it is good for a man so to be. In other words, he goes back to this thing, hey, if you can be unmarried, be unmarried. Not a bad thing. Notice he says in verse 27, I think this is key and it's very critical. Art thou bound unto a wife, seek not to be loosed. In other words, we shouldn't seek to do this. There are exceptions that God gives. In Matthew chapter number 19, for the cause of immorality in the, in the family, in the home, uh, they are free and they are loosed again. They're not under bondage in that case. In the case of abandonment for the cause of Christ, they are free and they are loosed. I believe personally that in the cause of an abusive home, they are free and they are loosed. Now that's one, and if you disagree with me on that's fine, and, and we'll shake hands and be disagreement on. But I do believe there's a sufficient enough evidence in Scripture to support that. And then we come down here to this thing of those that are bound unto a wife seek not to be loosed. This answers that question they ask Christ. Can we divorce her for any reason? No, not for any reason. But there are some reasons. So don't seek to be loosed. If you're able to, to keep the family together, if it can be reconciled at all, that ought to be first priority. When I counsel families, and I still counsel families, even as a divorced pastor, and possibly am more capable of counseling troubled families because I've been through it, and I understand some things that maybe someone who's not been through it can under, can understand. And in counseling families, my very first and ultimate priority is to reconcile the family. That is always our purpose and our direction and our goal because I believe that to be God's desire. But because of the hardness of men's hearts, we find ourselves in situations. And God does make some exceptions for those situations. And those are the things that Paul is dealing with here.
He says, Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, in other words, if you're loosed from a wife and you can stay single, again, Paul hits this thing, if you can stay single, it's better. You can give yourself more to the service of the Lord. You're not under the burden of caring for a wife and a family. That's better. But, and if thou marry, in other words, having been loosed from a wife, he says, but, and if thou marry, thou hast not what? This is speaking of the person who was loosed from a wife. Unless you think, well, no, that's speaking of an unmarried. And if a virgin marry, now that's the unmarried, she hath not sinned. So it is speaking of the unmarried, but it is also speaking of those that have been married but have been loosed from a wife. That's why it's stated twice here and within context. But this I say, brethren, that the time is short. Uh, 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 let me, I'm sorry. Let's go to verse 20. Verse 20 again. And if the virgin Mary, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, and this is, this is why Paul is so emphatic about if you're able to remain single. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. I'm trying to keep you from some trouble. Again, dealing with the, the day that they were living in, the absolute persecution they were in. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. In other words, some of you may lose your spouse. They may be put to death. And they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though, as though they possess not, and they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. But I would have you without carefulness. The word carefulness is a little different than the way we use it today. It means full of care, full of anxiety, having burden placed upon you. But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. And I think all of us understand that. I'm not trying to be, I don't think Paul was trying to be funny here, nor am I trying to be humorous here. But the Bible says that a man who is married and has a family and does not care for his family is worse than an infidel. And so there is time and there is effort every week given to the care of your family. And I'm not saying it takes away from the time that you are able to serve the Lord, because I think in that bound, God allows you all the time that you can to serve Him. But what Paul is saying is if you don't have those cares, you're able to give yourself more fully to the service of God and to do something. So again, he's dealing here with these exceptions are here. My recommendation is... Stay single if you can. But if you can't, if you just have to be married, you're allowed to do it, and you have not sinned, provided it fits these criteria. We find one exception that I know of in Matthew 19, and that is, save for the cause of fornication. We find another in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with abandonment for the cause of Christ. I think there's also sufficient evidence to say for an abusive relationship with a husband or wife that is not pleased, uh, is not a believer, is not pleased with you. And then the last cause, uh, 
uh, I'm sorry, I got the law. I, I, my brain just died on me. I had one of those brain fogs for a second. <laughs> anyway, suffice to say, uh, Paul addresses this thing and makes it very clear that if within these guidelines, not for any cause, I, we're not we're not saying hey go out here and get a divorce. Boy, God, we know God's heart on that issue, don't we? God is not for divorce. That's not His desire. He has made exception for, and He has made it in a way. So that if we cannot contain, we are allowed to marry again under these criteria and not be sinning. Uh, we're going to deal with a little bit more, more break in a couple of these next Sunday morning, if you'll be here. And I think we can wrap it up next Sunday morning. There's a couple things I want to expound a little bit further into and break them apart a little further and show you some more scripture on. And so we'll deal with that. I've skipped over a few things for sake of time today to give you the general overview of what the Bible has to say on it. And then we'll delve into a few more points of it a little more clearly, uh, a little more fully next week as well with Scripture. Again, uh, if you have any uh, questions or you feel like, boy, that, that passage just wasn't, that, that just wasn't right, let me know. Again, Paul is not saying you have to um, divorce. He's saying there's permission here. If you can, keep it together. If it's, if it's all possible, reconcile, keep the family together. That is God's desire. But in the case that it's not possible, these are allowable, and you are not under bondage. Okay? All right. Uh, let's have a word of prayer. And then uh, if you don't mind, those of you that are members, if you want to stick around for a minute, uh, even visitors, you're welcome to. We're going to pass out a, a ballot here. Uh, we're going to be voting on Brother Kevin Douglas as a deacon. And um, it should only take a second to get that handed out and passed out. So let's have a word of prayer, and then, Brother Wayne, you can pass those out for us. Father, we're so thankful for your word. I pray that you would help us to always come to it looking for what it has to tell us and, and the truth that it has to share with us. Lord, may we not twist it or misconstrue it or pull it out of context to fit what we believe or what we've been taught, but may we come to it with an open heart, with a yieldedness to your Holy Spirit, and asking you to show us from your word the truth that you would have us to hold to. And so, Father, help us in this area. Bless the vote that will be taken in a few moments here. Many of our folks, I know, have been praying for several months for your guidance and leadership and the position of deacon. I pray that you would help to guide and direct our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.